we're going to be looking now once again at Hebrews. If you turn there in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're our guest this morning or you're new the last few weeks uh, through the spring uh, months and then also up through just the first Sunday in July, we've been on a journey through this incredible letter in the Bible, Hebrews, which tells us that Jesus is better. Don't settle for less, right? Don't settle for anything less than Jesus. Whatever it is, whoever it is, it's less than Jesus. And he is the greatest. And this wonderful book challenges Christians of all the ages from the very first century to now that because Jesus is worth it, we press on in following him and giving our lives to him. And so we're going to continue to do that as we keep this journey going through uh, the book of Hebrews for the next uh, several Sundays. And we're here in Hebrews 11, and that is page 1007 of the Bible provided for you. If you'd like to uh, turn there, page 1007. And we're going to begin by uh, reading these first six verses this morning. Now, I know you've settled down. you stood for a while. Uh, if you're able, please stand. We're going to read God's Word together. If you're able to do that, and we are reading Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Now, Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for this time to gather. We pray for our sister Annetta, who has been uh, taken by ambulance. We thank you for those who assisted her now. O oh Lord, great physician, be with her and with the others who minister to her, and bring your healing touch upon her, as our, we ask now. Bring your comfort. And now, Lord, as we come, we know that you are the author of this book. We know this is your living word, and we ask that by the Spirit of God, make this word alive to our hearts and minds. And may we, Lord, your people, through your grace, have a God encounter this morning, we ask in the name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, we are continuing this journey through Hebrews, and word journey brings to my mind a journey that Susan and I uh, took a few weeks ago. Uh, we did have some vacation, and uh, that was 
connected with also a, a trip up to Washington, D.C. to be, participate in a missions conference up there with 250 missionaries from around the world. It was uh, absolutely wonderful. And uh, though you already know it, I'm here to report God is alive and well, all right? And the rumors of his death have been greatly exaggerated. He is, he is doing incredible things around the world. And so it was a blessing to be there. But now, uh, Susan at first did not want to come. She was uh, uh, recovering some, from some joint replacement surgery. And so, but I so wanted her to come, so I, I bribed her just a little bit, to be honest with you. Now, I didn't have to bribe her to go be with the missionaries because she loves being with the missionaries, just uh, so devoted to them. Uh, but she wasn't sure if she wanted to make this trip, so I, I bribed her a little. I said, honey, if you will go, we'll just take our time going up through the Shenandoah Valley, and I will, I will, I'll go antiquing with you. Okay, I'll go antiquing with you. Let's put it out there. So I went antiquing for several days with my wife. I want you to know if there is a purgatory. (laughs) I'm okay, all right. Wow. By the way, a deal's a deal. We made a deal. And so the way I looked at it, well, okay, she can antique and I'll geek, okay? I'm a history nut. And uh, so I, I was able to geek out in some of those locations. And so antique and geek, happy Susan, happy Sam. So it, it worked out. But now I want to tell you something. Those antique shops are not on the interstate. Did you know that? No, they're not on the interstate. So we went by way of Highway 11, Highway of 11, going up through the Shenandoah Valley, mile after mile of Highway 11 and antique shops. I do not know how many antique stores are on Highway 11 in Virginia, more than Baptist churches, if you can believe that. It was amazing. I couldn't believe how many antique shops. But we made our way up Highway 11. But I want you to know, I'm really glad we did because along the way as we stopped, we met some wonderful people, really encouraged to make some new friends as we made this trip. As a matter of fact, the the second full day that we we were traveling, first day that we actually stopped for uh, uh, this antiquing exposition, uh, we stopped in Marion, Virginia. Anybody here been to Marion, Virginia? Yeah, a little, little town, Marion, Virginia. Where's Fred? Fred, you're in here. Where's Fred? Fred's hometown right there, salute, okay? There's from Marion, Virginia. And uh, we walked there, and on the main street, there was this nice little restaurant. So we went into this restaurant, had a little store attached to it. We came in a little late for lunch. And so we were able to talk with the uh, delightful lady who ran it, her husband also. And as we were talking, found out that uh, uh, she was from the East Tennessee area, and so we told we from East Tennessee, and then my Susan, Susan said, uh, well, you know, Sam is pastor there in Knoxville, uh, and said, this Sam, my husband, Sam, I'm Sam and Susan Polson, and she said, Sam Polson. She said, you preached at our church once, and she hugged me, gave me a big hug at our missions conference. I said, oh, yes, yes, oh, I definitely remember that, okay? So we were... <laughs> 
And she started listening to the radio. And then her husband came in and she said, hey, this is Pastor Sam from the radio. And he gave me a hug and a handshake and a pat on the back. And it was so wonderful. Still had to pay for lunch. So I guess they weren't blessed that much, but it was... Highway 11, it was a slower, longer road, uh, but we met some wonderful people along the way that encouraged us on our journey, and so the next few weeks, guess what? We're going to take a journey on Highway 11. See what I did there, okay, wasn't that? (laughs) Hebrews 11, okay? We're going to take a little journey, and we're going to meet some very encouraging people, Because that's the reason the Lord has put the stories of these great men and women of old, the stories of their perseverance and faith, to just encourage us to keep on keeping on in our faith. Because you see, if you think about it, when you look at the last verse of verse 10, would you notice verse 39? The writer could have gone straight from verse 39 of chapter 10 when he said but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls he could have gone straight from there to chapter 12 verse 1 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He could have said, we are those who persevere in our faith and therefore let's run with diligence the race that is set before us. But he was not led to do that by the Holy Spirit. He was led to give examples of people who had already run the race ahead of us. People who already had persevered through their long marathon of following after God. Now they've finished the race. They're up in heaven. We're now in our race, surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and we're to persevere just as they did. And that's the reason he gave this chapter. We call it the faith chapter. These great examples of heroes of the faith that while we're plodding along, while we're sucking wind to keep going for the Lord, we can think about the people who've gone before who by God's grace persevered through faith and we can do the same, right? So we're going to take a journey here through Highway 11, Hebrews 11, and we're going to be encouraged by the examples of people who lived persevering, faith-filled lives. Now, what we want to do as we begin here is to see that this encouragement, before any particular example is given, is an encouragement that faith is going to provide. Faith provides. What we're going to see is that faith is such a reality that faith provides for any need that we have in this life. So what I'd like us to do this morning as we look at these introductory verses, verses 1 through 6, is to notice that there are these qualities that faith will provide for us for our own race 
for the Lord as we follow hard after him. So what does faith provide? Notice, first of all, verse 1. Faith provides confidence. It provides confidence for our lives. Verse 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now notice, it says, faith is a work that the Lord does bringing us assurance. That's a word of confidence. Now the word assurance here is an interesting word. It's only used two other times in the New Testament. It literally means to stand under, to stand under. Faith is that which stands under us and gives us assurance. It's our foundation. It's our support. It's the bedrock. That's what faith is. But there's also something very interesting about this word. It's not used very often, as I said, in the New Testament, but it's also used, though, many times in Greek writings outside of the New Testament, other uh, writings And one of the reasons it's used commonly is as a word for a title deed. A title deed. That the title deed is the assurance that something belongs to you. You have title to it. It is not what it is, but it represents what it is. And it is what is your proof that that object is yours. You have title deed to it. So... Isn't that a wonderful thought? Now, faith is the title deed of the things hoped for. What does that mean? It means that faith establishes the things we anticipate. What we hope for is the things that we anticipate from Christ. Faith establishes those as our own personal possessions. Faith is the title deed of the things that we hope for. Now, what does this mean about faith? It means, friends, faith's not a wish. Faith is not wishing that things would happen or wishing that things could be. That's not what faith means. And faith is not an ability. Faith is not something that we work up. Faith is not a wish. Faith is not a word. Faith, in its very essence, is this. Listen carefully. It's a gift from God. It is an assurance given to us by God in our spirit so that we can lay claim to the things that are promised by God as being ours. Here's a good definition that I like to use for faith. It is The God-given ability, faith is the God-given ability to know as a fact what he has promised is ours. Faith is the God-given ability to know as a fact, to know as reality what he has promised is ours. Many of you have as one of your favorite verses in the Bible, perhaps a passage in the Bible, rather, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. What does that say about our salvation? Here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. 
It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace, through faith. And the grace and the faith is a gift of God, so that we know that our salvation is not of our doing, but it is from start to finish a work of God, but it is ours, right? Even though God did it, he gave us the grace, he gave us the ability to lay hold on Jesus in faith. In that great grace and faith that he's enabled us to have, we have a title deed so that everything promised is ours, right? That is faith. It's a gift of God. And so faith produces confidence in our lives. Here's a second quality that faith produces. It encourages us. Faith produces and provides conviction for our lives. Conviction for our lives. Look at verse 1 again. Now, faith is the assurance. That's the word for confidence. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, here's a question we might ask. How is confidence and conviction different? Aren't they the same? Confidence and conviction. Well, these two words, assurance and conviction, are very, very similar. But there is a little distinction. Listen carefully. The word assurance and conviction are slightly different in this. The word conviction means a persuasion of your mind, a persuasion of your mind that produces a decision or a commitment. It doesn't mean that you just know something. It doesn't mean that you're just aware, you figured it out, you understand it. But it means that you now have this, what you know, as a conviction, so you act on it. You actually step out upon it. That is what faith is. It enables us to live with a conviction. It's the idea of a response to what we know as true. So what does that mean, friends? It means faith is not neutral. Faith is an incredible force. You know why? Because it's a force of God. And when God works his miracle of his grace and faith in your heart so that you're not just intellectually convinced, but you are spiritually converted, you are motivated, right? You are motivated to act upon your faith. Faith without works is what, the Bible says, dead. Faith is going to bring conviction so that you respond to the work of God in your heart. Now, notice what it's a conviction about. It's a conviction about the reality, look at verse 1, of the things not seen. It's a conviction about the reality of the things not seen, things that are not visible. You see, faith enables a Christian to really see. To really see. And to see the things that are 
of the Lord. They're spiritual. They're real. But you see them and now you act upon them. I don't know about you, but have you ever experienced trying to testify of your faith or share your faith and you just want to grab the person and say, can't you see this? Well, this is as clear as a nose on your face, buddy. How can you not see this? See, what faith does, faith enables a person, by God's grace, to see the invisible reality. Invisible realities. How many of you know that the things that are truly real are not the visible things? The things that really last are not the visible things. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Listen to what Paul said. As we look to the things that are not seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. That means temporary. But the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. You see, by faith which is this gift of God, a Christian is convinced, he has assurance, and he is convicted, he is compelled to act upon and live upon the unseen realities of life. What is the ultimate unseen reality? What is the ultimate unseen reality of all unseen realities? God himself. We worship and have faith in the invisible God. But he's the ultimate reality, right? Paul said this when he was writing to his protege, Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus. He said this in worship. Chapter 1, verse 17. To the king of the ages, who is immortal and invisible, the only God, there is no God, but one God. He's invisible. He's the only God. To him be honor and glory forever. And what is it that a Christian is enabled to do by the grace of God? Well, listen to what... Paul said to Timothy in chapter 4, same letter. He said, because we have our hope, hope, confidence, assurance, set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. He's the invisible God, but he's made himself known to us as the ultimate reality of our lives. And by that faith that he has granted us, we set our confidence on the living God who cannot lie, right? That's our confidence and our conviction. So what does faith provide for us, friends? Our faith provides conviction. Our faith provides confidence. And now as we respond to what the Lord is doing in our life by His grace, here's what faith also gives to us. Faith provides a commendation for our lives. 
It provides commendation for our lives. God always commends faith. Look at verse 2. For by it, what's it? Faith. For by faith, the people of old. Who's the people of old? The, what we would call the Old Testament believers in God. The people that he's going to talk about here in these next verses. Verse 2 is a introduction to the lives of the people of old. The people of old are the people in chapter 12, verse 1, who are the cloud of witnesses. These are the people of old. And we learn that God, as he commended their faith, will commend our faith as well. Now, notice, who was it that commended these people of faith? Who was it that commended these people of faith? Were they commended by the world? <laughs> no. We're going to read some stories about some of the most hated people of all time. Devoted followers of God, but they were hated by the world. Friends, guess what? Nothing has changed through the millennia. If you are a follower of God, you are going against the grain of the world system. Your face will be to the wind. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You follow Jesus, it is the most wonderful life you could ever live following Jesus. But do not be surprised, take it for granted, and expect it that if you follow Jesus, you are not following popular opinion. As a matter of fact, you can't follow Jesus and have as your compass popular opinion. You can't put your finger in the wind Figure out what way things are going and go that way as your compass. If you're a follower of Christ, your compass is, I'm following my Lord, what he says I will do. And so you're not looking for the world's commendation. Friends, we have to understand, sometimes you have to choose who you're going to please. There can come a time when you cannot please the world system and please your Savior. Sometimes you've got to say that the smile of God is more important to you than the frown of the world. And yes, it's heartbreaking, and I will not lie to you. Sometimes the people you will disappoint if you follow Jesus are people you love with all your heart. They're good people. They're people who are really for you in so many ways. Maybe people who have helped you. Maybe people that you have a heart attachment to them. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to disappoint them sometime. It's the world that's against followers of Jesus. And I want to tell you, what did we learn from Jesus' life? Who were the greatest enemies of Jesus? People of the world, the Romans, were they his greatest enemies? No, the greatest enemies of Jesus were not the people of the world, but the people of the religious leaders of the day. People who had taken the religion of God, found out how to use it for power and money, 
And they were using that power and money of religion in the name of God. And they were Jesus' greatest enemy. Friends, I want you to know that if you follow Jesus, everybody who's in church this morning is not going to be happy about it tomorrow when you take Jesus with you. It's fine that you come to church today. It's fine that you brought your Bible. It's fine that you pray. They were in church. They carried their Bible. It's fine that if you want to bow your head and bless the meal, that's okay. But when you start to take it into the workplace, into the schools where you go to school, when you start to take the reality of Jesus and you're following him, you will find at times that people who name the name of Christ will be your most severe opponents. Faith provides commendation. Commendation. Why do we seek God's commendation? Why? Why do we trust him? Here's the reason, friends. Because he's worthy of it. We don't follow Jesus for what he can do for us. We don't, we don't obey Jesus because we'll have a better life. We don't follow the Lord so that things can just be smoothed out and peachy for us all the time. Why do we follow Christ? Because he's worthy. He's worth our following him. He is the treasure hid in the field. He's the pearl of great price. And we love him and nothing is as valuable to him. We trust him because he's worthy of our trust, right? Whose approval are you seeking? What a question. Faith provides commendation. Faith provides conviction. Faith provides confidence and also faith provides, notice if you would in verse 3, it provides a context for your life. A context for your life. Verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's the spoken word. It's rhema, not logos, message. This is rhema. The spoken word. The universe was created by the spoken word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now notice this. By faith, we understand. Some things you only understand through faith. By faith, you understand. By faith, what do we understand? Notice, verse 3, we understand who made the universe and we understand how the universe was made. We understand who made the universe and how the universe was made. And we understand this by faith. We don't come to understand this by science. It's not by science that these questions are answered. Listen carefully what I'm about to say to you. Science by its very nature, science by its very method, the scientific method cannot 
answer the question about the origin of things. Why? Because the scientific method requires observation and measurement. Science is based on observation and measurement. Well, friends, how many of you know that when God created the heavens and the earth, there was no one there to observe it and no one there to measure it? It was created by God when there was no one but God and there was nothing but God. There was a time when nothing existed but God. And God stood out upon nothing. God spoke something and everything came into existence. That's what the Bible teaches. That he, that he created all things by his word. Now, the authors of some of our science textbooks want you to believe that they can tell you how the world and the universe was created. But their own scientific method in the textbooks, observation and measurement, says that this is not an issue of science. How we got here is not proven by science. It's proven because it's an issue of faith. No matter how much people want to deny it, ultimately there's a step of faith because no one was there. Now, does that mean the Bible's not scientifically accurate? It is scientifically accurate. But the Bible is the message of God, and God never even tries to prove his existence and how he created all things. He simply says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we look at all that there is we see the glory of everything. We look at our own nature, our own conscience, and everything tells us there is a first cause who caused all this, but he had no matter to start with. Matter is not eternal. God is eternal. He's the God who created matter itself. Faith understands that. There are four-year-old children back here in these hallways who have more understandings than some people with strings of PhDs because they know he's got the whole world in his hands. They understand that the world was created by God. What did the Lord say? What did Jesus say? He says, he has hidden these truths from the wise and he has shared them with children. The children will lead them. Now, how does that give me a context? You say, Sam, you kind of went there on a tangent, it seems like. Matter of fact, felt a little bit like a rant, to be honest with you. No, it, it wasn't a rant. It wasn't a tangent. I actually put that rant into my outline. Right there it is, okay? I, I planned that, I, that rant right there. Why? How does that give me a context? Listen carefully. If everything is created by God, all things are created by God, then I am one of those things. If God created all things, 
I am one of those things, and if God created me, then I am accountable to him for my life, which he created. And there is where many people in the name of science don't want to go. Because once you admit there's a creator, you must admit that you're created. And when you admit that you're created, then you are answerable to your creator. And that truth is pressed down in this world. No, you don't have a creator. There's just eternal matter. And by some force, all of it came together. And you, you over a period of eons of time, are just a product of eternal energy and matter. Therefore, you don't have a creator. Therefore, you're not accountable. And you press it all down. And guess what you do? You become your own God. And what was the first lie of Satan? You can become like God. You see, friends, Satan really doesn't come up with new lies. He just repackages the old ones. This is the context. My, I'm created by God. What does that mean? That means my life matters. I don't find my self-image in myself. I find my self-image in my God. I don't find my identity in myself. I didn't create myself. I find my identity in my God who created me. My God is a God of purpose. He does nothing on accident. Therefore, I'm on this earth. I have a purpose. I find out from the scripture, not only do I have a purpose, I am loved by this God. I'm loved so deeply that when I was a rebel and I was bent on my own destruction, this God loved me and rescued me by the death of his own son. My life matters to God. How could I not serve this master? You see, this is what faith does. It gives you a context for living. Why am I here? Why am I alive? Why am I in the kingdom at such a time as this? Why am I on this planet? Why do I have this very day? It is my God's gift. And I have a context to live in. I'm not just floating. I'm not just skimming. No. I am walking with this God. And that leads to the next thing we see here, a consecration, a consecration of our lives. That's what faith produces. Because I know now, because of the Lord, I matter to him. My life matters. It has significance. Therefore, I consecrate my life to serve him. That's what faith enables us to do. And here he gives us the first of examples of people who consecrated their lives by faith. He mentions two uh, very quickly. He mentions Abel. You know the story of Abel. He is the, the son of Adam and Eve. What do we learn about faith through Abel? We learn about worshiping by faith. Worshiping by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Cain's his brother through which he was commended as righteous. By faith he was declared righteous. Righteousness by 
Faith alone. See, the gospel has never changed. Righteousness by faith. God commended him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he was murdered by his brother Cain. He still speaks. You know the story, most of you. Two brothers brought sacrifices to the Lord. Abel brought the lamb, which was of his flock. And his brother Cain brought the produce of the fields. Now listen carefully. Nothing wrong in an offering of the flock and an offering of the fields. If you read the Old Testament, both could be offered to God. Offerings of grain and offerings of the flock. So what's the problem? The issue here is how you worship God. On what basis do you worship God? You worship him by faith that obeys how you are to approach him. God had already made it clear that there was only one way a person's disobedience could be covered. What was the first covering in the Bible? Adam and Eve sinned, their mom and dad, Abel and Cain's dad and mom. They sinned in the garden. They recognized their nakedness before God, their sinfulness before God, and God provided a covering. First time a covering for sinfulness is mentioned. And what was the covering? Skins of animals. Sacrifice covered their sinful rebellion. Here comes Abel. He's bringing his sin offering. And he comes bringing the offering of the sacrifice, a blood sacrifice for his sins because the Bible has always been clear. God has always been clear, just as Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sins. And so he offered by faith a sacrifice acceptable to God, but not his brother Cain. No, Cain came in the way of Cain that the book of Jude talks about. He didn't have to bring this bloody sacrifice. And as a matter of fact, he didn't come by faith. He came with an attitude that he would approach God the way he wanted to approach God. He came not in faith, but in prideful works. And his offering was not accepted. Friends, I want you to know, listen carefully, there's really only two types of religion in the world, and there's only ever been two types of religion. There's the religion of Abel, which is to be made righteous with God on the basis of faith in sacrifice. Or there's the religion of Cain. I will do it myself. I will make myself acceptable to God. I will do good. I will do great things. I will do what I want to do, and I'll make myself right with God. That's self-righteousness. The way to God is the way of faith in sacrifice. That's the way that Abel approached God. He was an encourager of worshiping God by God. Let me give you one other example. Like I said, I've been off four weeks. Okay. 
the example of Enoch. What do we learn from Enoch? We learn about walking by faith. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found. That means people went looking for him because God had taken him and now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Oh, wow. What a, what a story of faith is Enoch. Only four verses about him in the Old Testament. What do we learn about Enoch? We don't know much, but what we know makes him such an example of faith. Number one, he lived a brief life. Do you know that? He only lived to be 365. But he was a spring chicken compared to the rest of those folks. You read about how long they lived? He only lived 365 years. Isn't that interesting? The example of a man who walked with God lived 365 years. Just like days in a year. He walked with God day by day. He had an intimate life with God. God was his friend, his companion, and he walked with God. And one day God just said, hey, Enoch, <laughs> we're closer to my place than your place. Let's just go on, okay? But he had an influential life. The Bible tells us in Jude that he was a preacher of righteousness. He was a prophet. He said, I see the Lord coming with 10,000 of his saints. But he also had such a walk with God, he knew things other people didn't know. That's the reason he named his son. You know what his son's name was? Methuselah. He named his son Methuselah. Do you know what Methuselah means? Listen carefully. Methuselah means his death shall send it his death shall send it forth. How long did Methuselah live? Longest of all lives. 969 years and he died the year the flood came. You do the math. 969 years Methuselah lived. His name means when he dies, it shall come forth. God used the longest life of any human being as an example of his patience. But judgment day came. I want to tell you, Enoch knew some stuff. He knew things other people didn't know. You know why? Because he walked with God. And because of that, these men had this compulsion. And it's a compulsion that faith gives us, a compulsion to please God. Verse 6, without faith, it is difficult to please God. Is that what your Bible says? If it does, let's, let's get you another Bible, okay? Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God, come and worship God, draw near to Him, know Him, must believe that He exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. What are the two compulsions? What compels a life of faith? Here they are. God is real. We believe that God exists. And God is a rewarder. He rewards those who seek him. Friends, there are the two poles to guide your life. God's real. And he's a rewarder. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not somebody who wants to mess your life up if you live for him, young people. He wants us to have the abundant life. He rewards those that seek him. But here's the question. What is the reward of seeking God? What is it? What's the reward of seeking God? You get to heaven when you die? No, that's the result. Ultimately, what's the reward? Bigger house? Plenty of money? Perfect kids? What's the reward? Plenty of, plenty of security in your 401k, your 403b, your XYZ, onomatopoeia, whatever. That, what's the reward? Let me tell you what the reward of following God is. Listen, it's God. God's the reward. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's no one I desire on earth besides you. You get to heaven if God's not there. If Jesus is not there, it won't be heaven. It's God that makes heaven heaven. And what makes life a little bit of heaven on earth is you're a God follower. He's real. And he's a rewarder of those that seek him. Here's what God promises. He cannot lie. You want to hear a promise from God who cannot lie? Here's what he says. Jeremiah 19. You shall come and seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you. What are you seeking? You live your life seeking anything but ultimately God in Christ, and your life will be miserable. It will not be the life of meaning and purpose. It's a wasted life. But when you live a life of saying, this is my life, today I'm following Jesus. Today I believe he's worth it. Jesus, you are my reward. You are the treasure of my life. You are worth it. I'm going to follow you today. Now, friend, you put a string of those days together and you have a lifetime and a lifetime that matters now and matters forever. Amen. Hey, it's sweet to trust Jesus, isn't it?